I'm, I'm glad to be here. Um, <clears throat> I always love to come back to Oxford having lived here for a few years. Uh, I don't go to the other side of England to where there <clears throat> is another institution. I can't remember what the name of it is. So I, enjoy, I enjoy coming back here. Um, <clears throat> the talk I'm going to give today is, um, or what I'm going to talk to you about, is work that's um, <clears throat> uh, just beginning or uh, uh, under, uh, just getting underway. So um, I'm not going to have pages and pages of research results, but I rather want to kind of raise some issues, some questions to think about. And I'd be interested in some of your input on some of the things that I'm talking about. <clears throat> and I'm traveling with my iPad, so we'll see if our iPad actually works. Yes, our iPad actually does work. All right. Um, as, as Catherine mentioned, I, uh, I work with the clinical and translational science award programs <clears throat> in the US. Uh, these are translational research programs. Uh, I've spent the morning talking about translational research programs at Oxford, so I know you're <clears throat> familiar with translational research uh, in the, probably the same position we are in the US, uh, thinking it's a good idea, wondering who's going to support it, and actually wondering what it is and what it covers and what it doesn't cover. <clears throat> in the US, uh, under our former president uh, and our former NIH director, it was decided the translational research did not get enough attention. Uh, in particular, that clinicians didn't have the time to do research and that they ought to get funding and there ought to be programs to support them. And so we began about six or seven years ago <clears throat> uh, what are known as the Clinical uh, and Translational Science Award, which give large amounts of money to universities to actually develop translational science programs. And what I discovered uh, just recently talking about is the biggest difference, I think, between our program and your programs is the money that's put into Oxford is largely for the research, whereas the money that's put into the programs in the university is largely to support research rather than the research itself. <clears throat> and the idea here is, is that by supporting translational researchers, you will help them then put together proposals to get funding, which in the US is the way we proceed. Most of our research is proposal generated or in response to proposals. So what we spend a great deal of time doing is providing the support to clinicians and bench scientists who would like to work together on research projects <clears throat> and, and pursue translation. And there are now 60 of these, and they're spread out all over the country. And for those of you who don't know, that's Michigan, the mitten up there if you come from Michigan. This is the way you always describe Michigan. And we're right here in Michigan. That's our tenor, our description. So we have a program. Uh, I think we have $50 million of funding over a five-year period. We're in a renewal right now, uh, the way Oxford is. And it's to develop translational research at the University of Michigan. So that's the context of, of where I come from. I actually direct the ethics program within our translational research program. So I'm the director of the Research Ethics and Integrity program. And a couple of years ago, I also became the chair of all of the ethics programs in all of the CTSA programs. So I work with 60 ethics programs around the US uh, addressing key ethical problems in clinical and translational research. And the sorts of things we're looking at right now are education, 
uh, and our efforts are primarily on how can we work together and collaborate so that all of us aren't inventing and doing the same thing. So in education, we're trying to develop materials, tools, standards, and so on and so forth. Uh, the CTSA programs have actually created a detailed list of competencies as to what you need to be uh, if you're going to be a translational researcher. Uh, we now have a working group on biobanks. <clears throat> Everybody is setting up a biobank. Uh, now I'm going to talk to you about our biobank in a minute. And it raises all sorts of questions about uh, how the biobanks are set up, how they're used, how you collaborate. So we have a working group on that. Community engagement is a very important part of translational research. So we actually have a, a working relationship between our group and the community engagement uh, working group. Uh, we're very interested in doing consults. Uh, as researchers develop projects, they need to get inf advice on ethical issues. So most of our programs have a consulting service. And we're now working together to try to standardize our consults and share our consults so researchers don't get one set of advice in one university and another set of advice in another uh, university. <clears throat> we're interested in research collaboration in ethics. So how do we actually promote collaboration on ethical, pro ethical research projects? And <clears throat> this is a working group that actually was established and then uh, recently uh, phased out. And that is, how do you actually judge the quality of, and that's uh, US IRB for here, Research Ethics Committee uh, review. So how do you actually find out whether the research ethics committees are giving quality reviews and quality advice? So that's, that's what our working groups are on. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to talk to you specifically about human co uh, uh, informed consent and a project that I'm here, uh, that, that I'm working on uh, relating to that. So when you deal with human subjects research, uh, the vast majority of it that we see at the University of Michigan, and you're probably slightly different because you're in a, exclusively in a health setting here, and we're a full total university, uh, but the majority of the research that comes through our research ethics committee is minimum risk and largely not complicated. <clears throat> And one of the issues we're looking at right now is why are we even reviewing this research anyway? That if you can demonstrate at the outset that something is minimum risk, what more needs to be said? So why don't we just simply routinely bypass minimum risk projects and not even review them? That would get rid of about 80 to 90% of the work that our research ethics committees do at the University of Michigan if we did that. And there's a lot of talk about this is something we ought to do so that we can focus our attention on the really difficult cases. There, there are some issues that pose real dilemmas that probably nobody's ever going to agree on. Uh, and what do you actually do about those? We had an interesting one to give you an example of the kind of consults we do. Uh, <clears throat> we have a group of researchers that are trying to study whether it's possible to reuse uh, cardiac pacemakers but it's illegal to do it in the United States. So what they're trying to do is to have them uh, checked, remanufactured, or, or certified, and then export them to countries that can't afford 
uh, pacemakers for, for patients. Uh, in the US, uh, industry has control of this. You put it into somebody, and that's it. You, you can't do anything else. So they're, they're studying at this point whether they can actually take those pacemakers, certify that they're good, export them, and then use them someplace else where they couldn't actually afford them. Well, what are the ethical issues there? Well, one of the major ethical issues there is if you can't use it in the United States, why can you use it in the developing world? And that's a huge problem that we have is that we very often uh, don't uh, <clears throat> apply our own standards when we do research overseas. So we're going to do research on this project, but we couldn't do that research in the United States. So is it actually ethical to do that? And then there's a whole series of other questions there. Uh, when you move into these other countries are what are the financial incentives? Who's going to get the pacemakers? Is this in a system where <clears throat> they're truly going to be distributed around and so on and so forth? So it raises a whole series of questions, not the least of which um, <coughs> the committee I have feels that uh, this really isn't the best way to spend resources anyway, that in developing countries you might actually have them pouring money into putting pacemakers in a relatively small number of people Whereas those same funds, if spread out on other projects, would actually save probably hundreds of lives as opposed to one life. So it's actually ethically not a very good project to do. You're not going to find agreement on that sort of project. And what's going to happen is uh, they'll go through all of the legal, and uh, legal reviews, find out what they can do and can't do legally. The IRB will probably pass it and will probably go ahead with all of the ethical reservations about it. There are some areas where I think there's a need to more study, and there are problems out there that if we studied them in more detail, we could probably solve some of the problems with human subjects research. And that's the area that I'm working with right now, and particularly with the area of informed consent uh, and how we give uh, informed consent and how we track informed consent. Uh, I assume you all um, know that um, why we use informed consent, because it's in just about every code that exists, and that is the voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. And that's a basic premise of, 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 um, of all human subjects research. And it's also widely accepted that that consent must be informed. So you have to get the permission, and you have to make sure that you, in, uh, that you uh, inform the person before you do it. So the primary goal of ethics committees, and is in most cases, is to make sure that informed consent has been properly given and properly documented. That's what it's all about. But there are significant shortcomings in the current process of informed consent. And that's the sort of thing that we uh, want to look at, what I'm looking at. The focus of much of the informed consent research is on specific cases and specific examples. <clears throat> and what I'm going to promote uh, to look at here are, are is the, uh, the systemic processes or procedures, the, the whole process of giving informed consent. And is there any way in which we can uh, change that? And that's because I, uh, there are some dilemmas, I think, that we need to address. Um, as research has become more complex, the informed consent forms have gotten longer. Uh, and this is just a phenomenon that happens. Uh, there's a new consideration. The Research Ethics Committee says, well, write that into the informed consent form. You need to explain this, you need to explain that, and so on and so forth. And as you'll see in a minute, I'm doing this in the context of a, a biorepository that's working with DNA 
And of course, when you take somebody's DNA and you don't know what you're going to use it for, there's all sorts of things you have to in inform. So the consent forms keeps getting longer and longer. And they also keep getting more and more complex. And what we also know from research is that it leads to less understanding, that the more complex the form, and this has been documented in many studies, the, uh, the less the subjects understand. So research has shown that informed consent forms are not written in an understandable language. They are complex. They are longer. They're leading to less understanding. So the problem here, the dilemma is that the need to document understanding in informed consent forms has reduced subject understanding of the research. And that's a strange thing. But what the IRB is doing, or the Research Ethics Committee doing, is actually documenting that you understand something. And in the process of documenting that you understand something, you aren't understanding it. And they're actually increasing the under misunderstanding that's going on. That's a systemic issue that there ought to be a way around. And one of the reasons, of course, we're interested in this is that these long, complex forms take an enormous amount of time to get through the Research Ethics Committee, and they actually slow the process. The negotiating of these forms is, is uh, really uh, a very slowing process. And we're trying to speed up uh, research in the US uh, and getting through IRBs. Uh, and it's a little uh, just one. Uh, anecdote and going through this, uh, as I say, I'm doing this in the context of a bio uh, repository. Uh, in the process of negotiating my own informed consent forms for this, uh, and when we came in, and I'm going to show you in a minute that uh, we wanted to do a short consent form, uh, the chair of the Research Ethics Committee actually said at one point, after we had about an hour and a half discussion, he said, this is very troubling. Because if you showed us that a short form is more effective than a long form, everybody would want short forms. And we stopped and we looked at them and said, well, yeah, what's wrong with that? And it just totally changed the culture of, of their thinking because they were thinking about long, complicated forms that documented everything that they needed to document. So it's an it's a interesting area. Uh, as I said, this is in the context of developing a, um, I've used the term biobank or biorepository for what I'm going to explain to you in a minute. We're actually calling it a biolibrary project to, co uh, to connect genomic DNA um, for, for research. Um, and it's the sort of thing that, that everybody is doing in the US, setting up these repositories. My understanding is, is Oxford has or is setting up at this particular point. I mean, you just can't exist as a major medical center unless you've got something like this. Whether they're useful or not is another question, but you've, you've got to have one. It's interesting to ask people, well, do you have to have one? How big does it have to be? And I think the answer in the US very often is, well, larger than everybody else has. <laughs> That's exactly what you need. So we have two goals, of, a series of goals of this. Uh, but the first goal is to uh, uh, foster translational research. So we want it to be a, a useful biolibrary, uh, biorepository. But then we're also using it as a research laboratory for the study of ethical uh, and uh, ethics and policy issues. So we're actually, as we set up our biolibrary, we're studying a whole series of things about the ethics of going through this. Uh, all the way on through, as I'll say in a minute, uh, to whether it ultimately is useful or not. So what we've said as our research goal is we want to create an ethically responsible and scientifically useful biolibrary. And our research question is, can we do that? 
and that's that's what we're uh, that's what we're actually testing. So our primary goal is service to the research community. So we want to set up something where people can collect, store, and share biological materials and health information, which is what every bio library or biorepository wants to go. The specific goals are initially genomic DNA, uh, but we may that, expand that and put in tissue and other things later on. Uh, <clears throat> we want to serve our own researchers, and then through them, uh, we want to uh, go out to uh, broader collaborations. So within the University of Michigan healthcare system, and then eventually out to uh, the remainder of the uh, uh, health, and, uh, health systems in the US. We think we want a large collection. So we think we want about 100,000 samples. But at this point, that's a number that's uh, either just kind of plucked out of the air, or it's a very common number that's used at the University of Michigan, because that happens to be the size of our football stadium. So anything large is 100,000. Uh, we have the largest football stadium in the US, so that's, that's a number that we use. And we uh, very often say if we run into trouble at some point, we'll just set up blood collecting at the exits of one football game and get everybody coming out, and that'll solve our problems. We want to safely store it, and then we want to share it. And that sharing is very, very important. It's, uh, we don't just want to lock the samples up, but we want to share them. Our secondary goal is to do research, and that is, can we, as I said, a scientifically useful and ethically responsible genomic DNA biolibrary. And our aims at this point are to establish and validate a process or a system to collect, isolate, store, and retrieve samples. So how do you actually do that? What's the system that you actually use? And then we want to establish procedures for use. And we're studying that all the way along the way. And I'll show you a few examples of why this is not as easily uh, as you might think it is. And then we want to determine the scientific and societal value of this. Because we're going to put in uh, you know, several hundred thousand dollars at least uh, to establish this thing. And the question is, how much useful research do you actually get used out of it at the end? What's the, what's the actual benefit of it? Uh, just why are we calling it a bio-library? It's because we want to set a particular tone for this. Uh, Bio-repository, uh, which is more often used, is a place where you store things. Uh, a bio-bank brings in the concept of security, so people either use bio-bank or uh, bio-repository. We have a large collection in Michigan uh, that the state has, which they've called a bio-trust. And that's because these are samples that they took from the people in the state of Michigan and never told them about. And now they want to use them. So they're convincing the public that they've now got trust in this. These are the blood spots that are collected from newborns. And I don't know how many of you have followed this, but for years, every state, or not every, but most states in the union collected blood spots from newborns for a particular screening that was done at that point. But then they stored them. About five years ago, the public discovered that these were stored and they were going to be used for research, and nobody had consented to them. So we're all trying to decide, what do we do with these? Uh, Texas took the approach of simply burning and destroying them all. Other states are trying to figure out ways that they can actually use them. So that's the BioTrust. We've gone with the concept of library because it allows us to talk in terms of books that people understand. <clears throat> so you're donating a book to our library. And your book contains useful information in it. It contains your personal information and your samples in there. 
and the idea that the information in books are really regularly shared. So we're using this term because it fits very well with a concept that the public understands. And the, ver the reason for that is that we want to bring people into this bio library on the basis of trust and understanding and not just simply try to snatch up their samples and not really tell them what we want them to do. We genuinely want them to feel like they're participating in this research. And we feel that the concept of a library is one that may be more useful, that libraries are useful community resources, and that's exactly what we're trying to do at this point. And as we say, we want to emphasize the social over the individual. Um, if you follow the US at all, you'll know that we have steadfastly avoided the British and other socialist systems of healthcare uh, because we don't believe in that sort of thing. It's all me and my stuff and so on and so forth. So you actually have to introduce this concept of a larger societal interest to get people interested in and in participating. Um, that's a little bit to show you how this thing looks, and I can share these slides if anybody wants to, but that's our sequential uh, as you go through this. But the idea is that we're collecting biospecimens and then the clinical information that's going into it, and what we're doing is fusing all that together and moving it out into research here, hypothesis generating, testing, and so on and so forth. And the library actually looks something like this. This is the structure that you have to actually put in place to create something like this. So there's an enormous physical infrastructure over here. There are all sorts of uh, software programs that we're working with now to pull data out, to share data, uh, to act as honest brokers, and, and things like that. The areas I'm interested in are up front here, where <clears throat> you actually come into this and we do the informed consent. So I'm interested in that because that's crucial. It'll determine how the samples are actually used. And then secondarily on top of that, and I'll explain this later, uh, as this information goes on into the various data uh, storage places, I want it to go in in a way that it is uh, coded with an ontology, which will describe all of the information that's in the informed consent. So we are working with this process as to how we're consenting, and then we're working with this process as actually how we share that information or store that information and characterize that information. So the informed consent side of this is that we want to enroll 100,000 subjects. And when we began this process, the question is, well, how do we do that? What are our options for doing that? And there were three options that were talked about. One option was to, um, uh, do opt out without Re research ethics committee approval. <clears throat> so someplace or another, put a opt out, and it, it, does opt out, do, does everybody understand what opt out is there? Someplace on some form that you sign when you interact with our healthcare system, <clears throat> there is a box which says, and your sample might be used for biomedical research or go into a biobank or a biolibrary. If you don't want that to happen, check this box to opt out. <clears throat> so that was, that was option number one. Uh, and our administrators were really gung-ho about this because this is fast, quick, efficient, and we could build, we had a million patients a year through our healthcare system. We could probably build this in a year if we wanted to without too much trouble. Option two was to opt out, but to actually check it with the Research Ethics Committee before we did it. 
And of course, that's always risky because you never know what a research ethics committee is going to say. <clears throat> so there was some question about that. Do you really want to ask a research ethics committee because they may tell you something that you won't want to know? And then the third option is to uh, opt in with a research ethics committee. <clears throat> Which one do you want to do if you had to do this? How many, how many would take option one? Do I know how many option one people? How many want option two? Few? How many want option three? So you really want to ask people whether they want to do this huh? and get them to, uh, to do it? Well, let's go through this and see. Uh, <clears throat> our goal is to uh, have the greatest efficiency without compromising ethics. <clears throat> so that's, that's, I want efficiency. We've got to do it the most efficient way we can. Uh, but I don't want to compromise the ethics because I run the ethics program and <clears throat> I'm accountable to whoever ethics programs are accountable to, whoever you want to do. So I already took a poll as to which option you want, and I can see which one <clears throat> you're going to. Here's how the opt-out without permission works, in case you're interested in it. How can you actually do that? You use excess materials from routine visits. <clears throat> so people come into the hospital. You collect blood. You don't need it all. There's excess material. <clears throat> and there actually are provisions um, in the US law, and I presume there are here, where you can actually use that material for research. Is that, is that the case? Can you use excess materials for research? OK. So you, you can do that. And the interesting thing is that if you de-identify it, it actually doesn't meet the US rule for a human subject, because it's de-identified. So you've got these materials, you identify, they identify them, and they no longer are human subjects' materials. And what has to go to a research ethics committee? Only stuff that is a human subject. Are you with me as a regulator? <laughs> OK, you, the people that run ethics committees, are you OK with me? OK, I right, just want to make sure I'm not doing anything that violates any of the rules at this point. And what you do is you put in what's called an honest broker system to link with the health system. And what that honest broker system is, is a computer interface <clears throat> which you feed directions into it. And it tells you that the information that it gives you at the other end about that patient will not allow you to identify the patient. So you can, in fact, pull out a lot of health information. But the honest broker will then go ahead and do whatever you say is necessary to de-identify it, and that makes it possible. And if you have a clever enough honest broker system, it is smart enough to keep going back into that record and keep updating the information that gets out there. Now, will that actually work in practice? There are institutions and biolibraries in the US who have said, yes, we think it will work, and are collecting large samples of material on that basis. But that's, that's how you run through uh, the process at this point. <laughs> so you then just <clears throat> provide an opt-out during routine admission. <clears throat> you stick it any place you want to on that admission form, because you're not really dealing with human subjects. And you're all set. You're ready to go. You've got your biorepository go. The objections to that <clears throat> is that we know the participants want, want to give the permission, that want, want to uh, say whether they're in or out. There have been lots of studies that have done it, uh, on this, and they probably reflect your view here. You can use my material. That's fine. I don't care. But just ask me. Don't try to sneak it by me. So we know that in advance about people. 
So if you don't follow that wish, you're not doing something that you are reasonably sure your subjects want. <clears throat> and there's also no evidence that the subjects actually understand what's going on at that point, that they understand the choices and so on and so forth. Because you really haven't provided them any information on what that biorepository is like. So we decided, and, and largely on the basis of the advice I gave the University of Michigan and over their objections, because I really thought this was an attractive way, we didn't want to go this way. And we're not gonna, not gonna try to do that. Uh, <clears throat> the opt-out with approval is you actually bring it to the Research Ethics Committee for approval. You provide the, uh, the, the participants with full information. You may even validate that it's good information that you're giving them. Then you present them with an opt-out choice. I don't know why this was supposed to be animated, but it's not. Uh, and you provide them with a choice. The objections of this is, why are you giving them an opt-out at this point and not an opt-in? And of course, the reason is, is because you suspect that there are going to be higher enrollments, that more people will uh, um, not take the opt-out option, and you'll get higher enrollments than if you actually ask them to opt-in. So if you suspect that, that that's what's going on, you actually understand that you're being somewhat devious with your population. So you bring them all the way to that point where it's opt-in, opt-out. And then what they really want, and you know that, is an opt-in. But you give them an opt-out because that's more efficient and more to your benefit. As an ethicist, I can't go with that. But there are biolibraries that are doing that. They're saying, well, we're better than the people that haven't told them anything. But we're not going to give them that opt-in at that point. So that's the, that's the second choice. If you go to the opt-in, with the HRHS committee approval. The problem is, is that it's slow and expensive and it slows the research. And so what we've decided is, is that our solution is at this point is that we need to improve the informed consent process. And what we're doing at this point is that we're separating informing from consenting and then we're validating the information process and we're trying to integrate it into the clinical workflow. <clears throat> Let me show you how this has happened. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to validate an efficient uh, uh, process of consenting our uh, subjects into our biolibrary. Okay, so we start with our overly long consent form. And that's our current consent forms. Uh, we include all the essential information about the trial. They're long and they're complex. That's what our research ethics committee wanted us to do. And what we do is we pull out of that consent form the information that they need to have about it and the consent, and we separate those two things apart. So we've created a biolibrary pamphlet which provides all the information that our subjects need. And that includes the uh, essential information about the trial. It's designed in a way by a, a health communication unit we have to convey understanding. They're experts in conveying understanding. Our, our research ethics committees are not ethics in conveying understanding. And then we validate the use of it. We validate that this provides the understanding that we want. And then we separate out the consent form. 
and that has the essential regulatory information in it so that we can actually document that and we can collect the signatures. So that's what our pamphlet looks like. Uh, I actually didn't bring samples with me, but I can bring them along. But we've condensed all the essential information into a single pamphlet. <laughs> and that's what we give people when we want to find out if they can enroll. And then this is our one-page consent form, single-page consent form. It's a little deceptive because there's something called HIPAA that we also have to tell them. So the HIPAA requirements are on the back of that. And I so far have permission that they can sign both on the front of the form, and they don't have to sign the HIPAA on the HIPAA. But we're checking on that to make sure that we can actually do that as we go through it. So what this form has on it is that the study has been approved by a research ethics committee, which they need to know, that these are the elements of consent that you're consenting to, and there are certain elements of consent, that there is something called HIPAA, which further regulates and restrict what this can be used for. It gives you a few options as to how, what you can consent to. So it's unlimited use for my disease and for only University of Michigan researchers. <clears throat> Those are the only three options we're giving at this point. And then that's the record <clears throat> of what went on. So we've pulled all of that information out and giving it in another format at this point. And eventually, what we hope to do is to put that information onto this, which is why I have it. This is my research iPad at this point. And to be able to deliver that in clinical settings so people can and, uh, go ahead and consent to it. Our validation process, and this is what we now have to do. We have to convince the IRB that we're providing understanding. So we are now recruiting through an online volunteer database we have. Anybody who's interested in, in participating in research at the University of Michigan can sign up. And you get regular emails saying, here's a new study. If you'd like to be in it, let us know. We've gone to that population. We've emailed them a pamphlet and asked if they are interested. If they say yes, we schedule a visit. <clears throat> We send them the consent on the one page, and we ask them to sign the consent. We then do an understanding assessment, a semi-structured interview. We further explain any misunderstandings that they have. We give them an opportunity to withdraw. And then they provide their blood sample, and they leave. And this whole process takes now about 18 minutes to get through. Uh, and it will eventually uh, take less time than that because we will not do the assessment of understanding. Once we know that they understanding, we'll just send them the pamphlet and move on through. But the idea here is that this is designed to validate understanding and consent. <clears throat> Rather than just assuming, because it's a long form that the IRB has said provides understanding, we actually want to validate that there is understanding out there and that we're getting that understanding so that we can go back to our research ethics committee and say, will you now let us collect 100,000 samples in this way? We've just told you that they understand this better, although we haven't done a trial with a long pamphlet, but we assume better than the, than the, than the long one there. The results of our validation is we're just up over 100 people that we've brought in. It's probably about 120 right now that we've brought in. 
our, our response rate is about 45% of the people we send the pamphlet to actually agree to participate, which is very high. It's probably going to go down later, but this is a population that's highly motivated. 99% uh, of those who agree to come into an appointment actually participate in the study. So it's, a, it's an easy sell once, once they get it. The pamphlet provides all of the essential understandings with only a few misunderstandings. And some of those misunderstandings are actually going to be very helpful to us. Uh, one of the requirements in the US is that um, when I enroll you in a trial, I have to make sure you understand that that might not be the only way you could meet your health objectives. There might be another trial or something else you're going out there. That turns out to be the most difficult thing is to explain to people, particularly for a bio uh, library project like this. Well, what do you mean? How else can I do it? And so on and so forth. So it's, it's been interesting. Uh, the limitations is that we have a biased study population at this point. So these are people, uh, we use the zip code of the University of Michigan uh, area. So the, most of them are University of Michigan people and so on and so forth. So it's a biased population. We're going to have to test it uh, elsewhere at the point. We have a literate, uh, well-oriented population. We have to change that. So our next approach is actually to go ahead and, and, and uh, broaden this. And that's where we're now going to start moving into uh, clinics. And to do this, what's crucial is we have to look at the clinical workflow. Where do you actually do this within the clinics without getting in the way? How do you do it? Uh, I assume, I mean, I know you're the same way here. The primary goal of the clinic is to get people in and out as fast as you can and get as many people through the clinic as you possibly can. So the last thing you want is somebody sitting there and slow somebody down for 18 minutes while they take a blood sample and explain the way how to do it. So the question is, how do you flow into that? So how and when do we introduce the study? We have to do space time so we figure out where we can fit it and how we fit it in. There's the expense issue of how much clinical staff time and how much of that do we have to support. And then there's a very important issue of, of coercion. So if we do this in the clinic, who actually raises it? Does the physician raise it? Or does the nurse, the assistant, the person who signs you in, who would you have do it? You know, the physician. Wouldn't you like to participate immediately? You have coercion in there, and so on and so forth. So, and this is actually helping us because we're actually in the process at the university right now of trying to integrate research more into our clinical delivery. So we're actually working with a system that will remind every physician of potential studies for that patient that they are seeing at that point. So our systems will link all of our clinical trials to the patient, the researcher, what the illness is. So when the physician sits down and says, oh, patient X is coming through, a note will come up, flash, 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 flash. This person qualifies for X clinical trial. Make sure you remind them. Is that ethical? That's my job as the ethics person in this process is to help the university think when it's becoming too insane in its consumerism and marketing and, and so on and so forth. So that's why looking at this workflow and how we can get into that workflow is, it, uh, keep going the wrong way on this thing. 
uh, is very important. Uh, <clears throat> so, as I say, we have increasing pressure. This question of the physician authority comes up there. And then, of course, the question of, of, the, of the, the, the patient themselves, when they walk in the door, what are they most interested in? My bio library? No, if they're interested in their, so at what point do you actually distract them? Uh, and I assume most of you are like I am when I go. I forget half the things I was going to tell the physician, and now somebody sticks another pamphlet in my face, and I've got to think about that. Is that related to my health care? Is that why they're doing it? And so on. So actually, it's very difficult to figure out where you work something like this ethically into a, a clinical setting. So we're going to launch it in three uh, clinical settings initially and then gradually broaden it on out. Eventually, then, we want to do a cost-benefit study. So Nuremberg says the experiment should be such as to yield fruitful results for the good of society, unprocurable by other methods or means of study. I would argue at this point that no biorepository has actually demonstrated that they're the best way to spend money. There are two things we're doing right now. We are individualizing medicine, and we are creating biolibraries and biorepositories, and neither of those has been documented to be in society's best interest. So this is one of the things we're trying to do, is actually document what comes out of this and so on. So the two questions is, do the biolibraries actually yield fruitful results? Can we get people to use them? And the question is, is the opt-in procedure actually too expensive? And that taking the high moral ground at this pace may not be economically justifiable. And we have to be open to, to that position that it may be the best idea, but in fact, there may be other health benefits that will ultimately weigh in. So the cost benefit of biobanks has really not been carefully considered. And that's, that's interesting given the amount of money that countries around the world are now pouring into these uh, biorepositories. Um, our project number two is the informed consent ontologies. <clears throat> informed consents are uh, uh, complex documents. They're uh, not simple documents. And the information in the informed consents is largely unshareable or not shareable at the present time. And to me, that is problematic. At Michigan, uh, until uh, up to the present time, what we do with an informed consent form is the patient signs it, we scan it as a PDF or a JPEG file, and we stick it in the record. Where's all the information in that? How do you retrieve the information relating to that informed consent form? There really is no way to do it, no easy way to do it. <laughs> The reason this is important is that it's vitally important to sharing samples and the information from biobanks. Ultimately, the goal is to link these together and to link them with researchers. And this can only be done if we understand how all these samples were collected. It's also essential for regulatory oversight for knowing what's in or what isn't in. So if a researcher comes in and says, I'm going to use samples from X project at another university, and you say, was it consented? And they say, sure, it was consented. Look, here it's got the Research Ethics Committee approval. Well, what does that mean? Very often, you don't have any information on it. So our goal is to create a framework for collecting and storing informed consent information. 
And the way I, we've characterized it at this point is that the informed consent is authorized informed permission to conduct research on research subjects. So that's what we're talking about. It's a, it's a permission out there. So if you look at it as it's authorized, there's a whole series of things that you need to know. Under what authority was it done? Was it done under the US common rule? Was it done under GCP? Was it done under, what is the authority of it? Because you're going to be sharing samples all over the place. What was it, or what institution? What was the method? So there's a whole series of things that tell you what is the authority behind that particular informed consent. There's the informed. What was the process by which the person was informed? In person, a mail survey, were they not personally consented, and so on and so forth. What are the elements that are in there? Uh, in the US, we're very specific about our elements of consent. Which of the elements of consent are in there? You ought to be able to pull these out fairly easily. Uh, and uh, was it validated? Was the consent form actually validated or not validated at that point? The permission, scope, duration, uh, contact, privacy, all those things that you need to know. Can you, can you contact me again? How is my privacy? How long will it be there? I mean, these are just essential things that you've got to have uh, to know whether a consent form is still uh, at all useful. And then the research, what is the research in case, the methods, the data, and so on and so forth. And then finally, what about the subject? All of that is information that's related to an informed consent form. And the question is, there is uh, the issue is there's no way at this point to, uh, to um, bring that together. So what we're trying to do is we take the informed consent and we create an ontology, which is a, I, I, this is not my area, so I call it an index. Uh, and the ontologists tell me that's way too simple to call it an index because it's not only an index, but it's an index that's got relationships and logic and everything else put into it. So it is both an index and a way of logically and, and so on accessing it. Uh, but our goal is to take that informed consent form to break it down into the, uh, um, the areas that we have, and then to link those areas with institutional records. So the authority comes from the institutions. So, and somehow, when the informed consent form goes through, all of that has to be plugged on into it. The Research Ethics Committee is the one uh, that oversees um, the, uh, what information is out there and what information was put in. Uh, the conformed consent form is where the permissions are documented. The um, research comes from the protocol and the subject information comes from the patient record. And so what the ontology is, it, it sits between all of the various pieces of information that are out there and brings them all together in one place to tell you exactly what that informed consent form is all about. And this is done now increasingly with the new technologies that are, are being used to collect patient records, to share research information. So we have things like REDCap, which is a clinical data collecting software, 
We have things called I2B2, for those of you who work in this area, which is a software that goes out and accesses the patient's record. It accesses the protocol and puts this all together in these data warehouses. And this ontology is what gives the structure to it. So you can now search it, use it, compare it, ask questions of it, and so on and so forth. And um, our challenges at this point are, number one, developing a comprehensive ontology. So somehow we have to come up with an index and a logic that everyone agrees to. And there are now a couple of efforts underway to actually do this, uh, one of which is at Oxford. And I actually met with somebody to talk about it today and, and possible collaboration. And then the other thing is to do to actually connect this with the research and the patient records and so on and so forth so that this material is entered in uh, uh, automatically, systematically, and accurately, rather than having somebody to sit down and fill out a 25-page form every time an informed consent form is done to provide that information. It has to come automatically from the context of all of the, the research support structure that's out there, the IT report st uh, structure. And that's what the uh, information folks are in the process of doing. So that's, that's the second thing. So we're trying to, as I say, simplify and actually increase the ethics of the informed consent process. And then the next thing we're trying to do is actually make it trackable. And that's the only thing that's going to really allow the sorts of collaborations that researchers are now trying to, uh, to develop. Um, just to give you one last example, we have a major collaboration with an institution in China. And it's very easy for the scientists to sit back with one another and share the scientific work that they're doing. They understand each other. But then you start asking, all right, you're going to collect your samples in a hospital in Beijing? Under what conditions? Under what rules? How are they consented? What did they agree to? How are the samples shift? So on and so forth. None of that has actually been worked out. And there's no good way of tracking that. So we've got all the physical mechanisms for either shipping our samples to China, where they've got some of the most powerful uh, sequencing equipment in the world, or for them shipping it over to the US. But we just don't know what kind of tracking we're going to do with that and how we're going to do the tracking. And it isn't until we solve problems like this and get this problem going like that that we're going to be able to do this ethically and responsibly. And that's, that's what our job is all about. So I will end there. I've got a few minutes for questions, if anybody has any.